0: This morning, we're going to focus on parenting. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles. We're going to look in Deuteronomy in just a few minutes. But uh, Deuteronomy is one of those books that everybody loves to turn to and read as you're going to sleep. But in our case today, it's going to provide some great learning in chapter six for us. Real quick, if you are a parent of a child, would you just slip your hand in the air? Doesn't matter if they're very young, or they've already gotten to the point that they're like me, up in the air. Okay, if you are an aunt or an uncle, would you raise your hand? Aunts and uncles, anywhere around the room? How about grandparents? Do we have some grandparents? Yeah, good, all around the room. The impact and the influence that we have for the next generation is immense in this room. If we could put it in the bo- a bottle and shake it up, it would splatter all over everything. We have a potential within this room to make such a difference in the lives of the next generation for Christ that it's it's almost palatable as long as we're focused on the right thing. Our world is right now uh, attacking parents. I mean, They're under attack in in a lot of different ways. Here's some of the ways, and maybe you fit into this category. There's this sense from some parents that they have to be in control of everything, and so they're the helicopter parents who are flying over their kids just making sure that everything's okay, making sure that everything's put in place, making sure that their clothes are perfect so that no one thinks that anything's wrong at home, making sure that everything's going right. If anybody is a helicopter parent this confession time, just raise your hand just so we can see you all around the room. Good, thank you, thank you, amen. Just, we're gonna open the altar now. Just come on up, relax. But also, there are other kind of parents that are being talked about in the media. There are snowplow parents. Maybe you heard of them just recently. They, they look at their kids and say, you're never gonna be able to pass college, so we're going to pay a university to get you to come in, and we're gonna make a snow plow for you. Just follow behind, we'll take care of it for you. Has anybody heard of this stuff? Yeah, it's in the news, right? Parents are taking a beating because they're also lawnmower parents. We're not gonna let anything happen to our kid. There's no weed that can grow under their feet. We've got to make sure that as they're walking along life, that everything is perfect, if someone doesn't like what they're doing, then we have to confront that person, because obviously they have problems, and we need to fix them. And as parents, we are just going ahead. Lawn mowing, everything that we can find. Here's another one. It's the distracted parent. We're sitting there with our kids. But we're looking at our texts and we're looking at our phones and we're consumed with what's happening outside of the room, not what's inside of the room. Because we're fearful that we may miss something, right? We want to be in control and we feel like in some way that's under control. So I've got to be distracted by work and by anxiety and by all the things that are going on out in the world. And that's what I struggle with so much. I can be with my kids, but not be with my kids. You know what I'm talking about? I don't really think about how they're feeling or what they're going through or what they're struggling with. I don't, I don't think about that a lot of times because I'm wondering, did I miss something? Do I need to catch up on something? Is there something that I need to give my attention to rather than them? It's epidemic. But another one that is happening in our culture is the missing parent. Last week, those of you who were here heard Nigel give his testimony of a father who just wasn't there. My wife has the exact same testimony. It doesn't have anything to do with where you grew up or what your economic status is. This is epidemic. There's just this missing parent in kids' lives. The other one, have you heard this one? It's actually boycotting parent. This is brand new. I mean, it's hot off the presses. If you haven't heard it, watch for it. They have determined that they don't want to leave a carbon footprint bigger than themselves, so they're not having children. They're boycotting parenthood. As I look in the Bible and I try to figure out what God had intended for parenthood or parents, I think it starts off with Adam and Eve went out and they were to procreate, right? Not because they were supposed to make little Vims, because don't we love that when they look like us, act like us, and do like us, and people say, "I just love your child," you like, thanks. <laughs> but because God wants them to look like him. And so we have this opportunity as parents, as grandparents, as uncles and aunts, to see these children that God is providing for us to nurture and take care of, not only as our little us's, but God's children. We have to kind of begin with that thought process to understand what it means to raise a child. And so I have two questions to kind of be the presuppositional questions for this morning. The first one is this, how do you bring God's best out in your child? How do you bring God's best out in your child? The second question is, how do we prepare them to launch into adulthood? Now, I am guessing that there's some people in here that are maybe pregnant. Is there anybody here today that's pregnant one? Okay, I see, you're pregnant? Wow. (laughs) We'll give you the place. And I see a baby back in the back, and you know what, if a baby cries or something, that's just an acknowledgement of the glory of God. Let them do it. And in that moment, we begin to ask a question, What is this child going to grow up to be? Where is it going to go? What's it going to be like? And parents, I can tell you, we don't want to think about our children growing up and being adults. We want to keep them young and we want to keep them in our house and we want to love them, especially until they're 14 and then we're ready for them to go. (laughs) I just say that as a joke, but I can just tell you, I'm loving my kids now than I ever did. I say it, you know, it's, it's kind of this funny thing in our culture. Yeah, they're teenagers. Oh, I can't wait they get out of my house. I'm like, oh, God, please don't let them go. But I know, God, that's what you want. That's what you've made them to do. You did not make them to be in my house till they're 35 because they eat more the older they get. <laughs> I know you want them out of my house, God, yes. And so we are posed with this question, how do we move them toward adulthood? And what I would say to you is this, you got to have a plan. Now, some of you are going, my children are already out of the house or my children are already 14, 16, 17, 18, 20 years old. What do I do? Listen, just stay on board with me and realize that that plan never stops. My wife and I have been married for 25 years this summer. She has suffered greatly. If you see her around, just pat her on the back and say, I'm sorry, honey. Just encourage her a little bit. She needs it. But we have set out with the purpose of figuring out how to best raise our children not to be in our control, but to be in God's control. And that's a process of releasing children. And I can tell you, it's younger than you think. By the time a child is 10, 11, and 12 years old, if you've got a good plan to release them into adulthood, you've already started that to control them and to keep them in and around you and control their attitudes and their actions and everything and and to basically manage their entire life at that age, you're setting them up to be 16 and 17 and 18-year-olds who are not ready to be 16, 17, and 18-year-olds. Listen, I'm not telling you this because we did it all right because I can tell you we did it all wrong. There are times that my son who uh, is named Joshua was so strong-willed at the age of two, I just gave up. I mean, it was crazy. If you look at this picture, this is Joshua when he was born. Now he's six foot four and 205 pounds. I still let him know about once a year that I can take him. But in this other picture you'll see my wife laying in the hospital bed. We found out 2 weeks before Joshua was going to be born that he had decided to turn upside down and he was now head up instead of head down. He had determined that he was going to be in control. He was ready to step on up and tell people what was going on and his do- and the doctor looked at him and said, "This is not good. We need to turn him around because he was a big big baby." So we immediately went into the hospital, and uh, the doctor came in. I can never, uh, I'll never forget. Dr. Groudon walked in the room, and he sat down, and he set me down, and uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to turn him around. If it works, we're going to go ahead and induce your wife into labor. Okay, okay. So I'm sitting there, and I've got this look on my face, and I'm watching him, and he's touching this baby, and suddenly there's this form of the whole baby poking out of her stomach. It was like some kind of thing from a movie that you're going, I'm not going to watch that one again, and... And you're you're just kind of like watching him begin to move this baby, and it's like slowly it began to work, and slowly the baby was turned around. And okay, okay, we've got the baby where we need it to be. He's ready where, where exactly where he needs to be. Jay, I want you to hold right here on her tummy and hold that baby in place. If you'll see that picture right there, that's my face, literally my arm by the time that it was time for him to come out was burning and shaking from holding him in place. It was all that I could do to just sit there and hold him in place. I was beginning to have muscle spasms to hold him in place, but yet we turned him in the direction he should go. There's a scripture verse that really plays into this that maybe you have heard. It's a scripture verse that that sticks out in my mind every time I think of my children. It's Proverbs 22, verse six, and it says this. Train up a child in the way he should go. And even, I love that, when he is older, he will not depart from it. The first two words there that say train up is only used five times in the entire Bible. This is the only time that it's used to say train up because everywhere else in the Bible that this word is used, it actually means to dedicate to the Lord. It is used to describe dedicating a house to the Lord for the Lord to inhabit. That's what it's used for. But in this case, it's talking about a child specifically and dedicating that child so that the Lord will inhabit. Child, picture this. We are going to have an opportunity, I believe with all my heart, to stand right over here on the sidewalk and walk inside of a door that will be the new worship center of this church. We're going to walk in there, and when we walk in there, my guess is there'll be some kind of ribbon there, and we're all looking at it, and we're going, hmm, this is going to be awesome. And there's going to be some scissors, and there's going to be a ribbon, and somebody's going to cut it, and in the midst of that, it's going to be said, this is dedicated to the Lord, And here's the picture that this scripture verse just stuck here in Proverbs. If you read the rest of that chapter, you're like, why did they stick that in there? But right there it says, dedicate that child to the Lord. And then it goes on to say, in the way he should go. The word way there could be just taken out and put in there the journey. See, we want to train up. We want to do it once and done. How many of you all are once and done people? I told you once, this is what I expect from you. Why do you keep acting like that in what I told you? right? Once and done, you've been taught, hey, ha, trained up. Now get on with it. But the scripture verse here is a journey where we are constantly in the process of dedicating our child to the Lord over and over and over and over. And I love this part of it. And it says, when he is old, when he is old, he will not depart. From it. This word, the word old that's used in the Bible, is only used when people are on the verge of death. All right? It's like when you talk about Methuselah kind of old, it's Sarah kind of old. It's old. They've lived a life and it's been old. And so the promise here is listen, sometimes our children are going to stray away from things. But if you've dedicated them to the Lord, they can't get away from what you've dedicated. And it may be years and years and years that comes in, and my prayer is that any time a child turns away from God or they're seeking their own way, that when they are old, as they grow through the process of their own journey, as they're in control of them, not me in control of them, that those things that we dedicated early in their hearts will just blossom forth. They can't get away from it. I love this scripture verse because it also tells us that there's maybe a time period in there that they are not necessarily following the Lord in all their ways. And here's what I've discovered. It's in those moments that I can give my boys the latitude to question that they own their faith instead of me owning their faith. It gives me that latitude to say, you know what, God, you're bigger than me and they're your children. I just get to disciple them, love them and care for them right now. But they're yours for eternity. So, I give them the space by which to learn and grow. So, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, 3, 6. Took a minute to get there. You got your Bibles? Open that up. We're going to look at this scripture verse uh, and, and just see what was going on as Moses wrote, wrote to the people of Israel. A little bit of background. The book of Deuteronomy is this book that's kind of in between. It starts out talking about what God has done, and it ends up going nowhere necessarily. It just tells a lot of things in it. It's a great book of teaching and learning, but it doesn't really take the Israelite people from captivity to the promised land. They're just in the wilderness. Have you ever been in the wilderness? Say yes. Have you ever been in the wilderness with your children? Say yes. So here we are. Moses is looking out at the people and he realizes that everyone who was in captivity in Egypt before probably ain't going over to the promised land. The reason God said they're not going is because they still have this love for the things that used to be, the love for other gods. They keep tripping up. You remember the cow they made one time? I mean, the the bull, you remember that? Does that that ring a bell for anybody? So everybody took all their jewelry off because Moses had been up on top of the mountain too long and they threw it into the fire and presto chango, this bull appeared according to Aaron and everybody started worshiping it. The truth is that Aaron fashioned it, right? But he wanted to say to Moses, this just happened. The people just need a God to look at. And so there is this scripture verse that we're gonna look at that's called the Shema. In the Jewish faith, every single morning and every night before the family goes to bed, the Shema is read every day as if it's a plan. We'll look at this says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? And he very quickly said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, Mind, he's referring back here to the Shema. Every single person who was in that room would immediately go, Yeah, he's got it. He's a good Jewish boy. He's got it. And then he flipped over and said, And love your neighbor as yourself. He added to it, which would have said to them, Wait a second, who gives you the authority to add to scripture there? This is the stuff that we go to bed with at night and we wake up in the morning. This is the stuff we teach our children, and this is the stuff we need to know. As Aaron is using these words, he uses the word here. The first word here. Have you ever yelled at your child, Get down here? Different word here. Have you ever yelled that? Raise your hand. Let's, Let's have a confession time. It feels good when you do this stuff. See, the expectation when you yell those words, Get down here, is not that your child says, I'm coming or 10 minutes later they show up, (laughs) right? The purpose is for them to get down here. Did you hear me? And so that's the implication here of what Moses is saying. You adults that are Israelites, I need you to hear this. I'm not saying this so you sit back with your arms crossed and you're just taking it in and nodding your head. I need you to realize that this is a call to action for you. Hear, oh Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. We don't need any more bulls coming out of the fire. You don't need any other gods before you. You need to stop all the silliness of trying to figure out how to be in the world and of the world. You need to figure out how to center your life on Christ. And the way that you do that, the way that you make God the Lord of you and who you are is to love God with all of your, the Bible says, with all of your heart, which includes your feelings, your emotions, the inner part of who you are. And in this reference, the mind, Jesus takes the mind and puts it forefront in his scripture verse. But this one, the heart is inclusive of that. The second thing is your soul, just your very countenance. The fact that you are a created being, you are alive. If you've ever heard someone say there were 37 souls there that day, they're referring to the same word that means the presence of a human being. Look at the person next to you and just acknowledge that they're there. You can say hi, you can wink, whatever it takes. Welcome soul, you're present. So not only in your heart, not only in your presence of being here, this is who I am, I'm, 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 I'm this thing, but in every work that I do, my might, with what I think, what I do, who I am, and my might. And then it goes on to say, and it adds, on your heart, that you keep this on your heart. How many of you went to ba- the bathroom this morning? That's not the full question, so don't stop. How many of you went into the bathroom this morning and you got out your toothpaste and you started to use it and it was down to the bottom of the tube? How many? Oh man, I hate that. I'm like looking around, do I have any mints? Can I get just a little bit out if I put some more? It's just this really frustrating thing. The intent is when you take a toothpaste tube and you squeeze it, that toothpaste comes out. Would you just agree with that? What Moses is saying to the Israelite people, when you get squeezed, God better come out. That's what he's saying to them. It's in your heart, it's in your mind, it's in your being, it's just what you do. When you begin to analyze how you respond to your children and react to your children when they're 8, 9, 10, 11 and ask, Did I just squeeze some God out? (laughs) It gets a little hairy. I just want to, I'm going to go off track for just a second. I'm going to get back on. I promise. I promise. So you walk into the house and your child is upstairs playing a video game and you yell up to them at the age of 10, 11, and 12, and you yell up to them and say, get off the video game and get down here. You have set up a pass fail scenario for your child. They will either get off and come or they want you fail them or you praise them. Let me just say this, if I walked into my house and I told my wife to get off of whatever she was doing and get in here, we would have some problems. Not only that day, but glory for a week. (laughs) I'm just saying. And so we began to ask the questions differently of how to have grace within a relationship rather than authoritarian control of a relationship. And in that, we carry them through the process of a journey, not an event, not just this one-time thing. All right, so then we get into the rest of the Scripture verse. Basically, all of that was for parents, uh, the Israelite people. And now Moses is saying, now let me talk to you a little bit about your children. So here's what it says in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently. What that word diligently means is it's like a, it's, every other time in Scripture, except for this one, it talks about a sharp sword that's able to cut through bone and marrow and go through something. So when you're teaching your children, don't mix words. Get right to the point. Get diligent about it. Get sharp with it. Talk to them in a way that they can understand. And it goes on to say, you shall talk to them when you sit in your house. And when you walk on the way or journey, you could add journey there. And when you lie down, the Shema, at the end of the night. And when you rise up, the Shema, first thing in the morning. And when you and shall bind them as signs on their hands and they shall be on their frontlets between their eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost and on the gate. So basically what this is saying is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. Make it real, make it alive and talk about it a whole lot. Every day, a part of the conversation that is constantly being squeezed out of you, adults of Israel, onto your children that they almost get tired of hearing it because they've memorized it themselves. They get it. You love the Lord. Dad, I get it. You love the Lord. Mom, I get it. You love the Lord. I see it. And they just kind of recognize it all the time. If you look at this picture, this is actually a Jewish boy with his father. This was happening then, according to this scripture, and it still happens today, where a young man puts a box on his head. That box is there to remind him that what he thinks is important, but inside of this box is one verse from Exodus and four verses from Deuteronomy, including the Shema. They are individual pieces. Each scripture verse is separated. And then if you look, they're looking on his arm right here. You can kind of see that there's a box there that matches the same box that's on his head. And it's right. it rests right here on the inside of the arm because it points the closest to the heart. And so not only is it on, written on his head, it is written on his heart. And in this one is the same scripture verses, but for some reason, this one is all put together. So basically, you need to break these apart and understand these scripture verses, but it's all part of the same thing, so don't lose sight. To love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might, with all that you are. And then down the arm, you'll see seven wraps of leather that goes around the arm. These, theologically, we could go into all kinds of things about the perfected number of Christ, the working out of Jesus. We could make it messianic. But what it leads to is the hand where there's a wrapping on the hand. And this says, without the head and the heart connected to God, the hand is probably going to be involved with the wrong things but because they are connected. What you know about God, what you know in your heart about God, what you think in your mind about God should move you to action. Wouldn't it be great if we had this kind of stuff still in the Protestant church? Just some reminder kind of things, not to become religious, but as those things that Jason said, those Ebenezer stones that constantly are reminding us, kind of like each Sunday when we take communion, constantly reminding us And so Melissa and I, my wife, uh, started this process with our boys and said, we want to be intentional in raising our boys. The next slide is a slide of a journey that we took in 2016. And we went to a total of 16 states. We wanted to see as many states as possible in one trip. And let me just tell you, that doesn't happen if you don't plan. And so if you go to that next slide, the the journey that we were on was gonna take us to some things that Melissa and I had experienced before the boys and then new experiences along the way. And so if you'll see up here in this upper corner, that was my wife and I's first apartment, 240 square feet. I walk into many sheds around here for lawnmowers that were bigger than my (laughs) first apartment. But let me just tell you, we got really close really fast. It was a great time to be that close. We pointed that out to our boys, and we continued to go down the trip. We went to the Anchor Bar. Some of you know about the Anchor Bar in Buffalo, New York. It's the first place that ever served hot wings, Buffalo wings. Uh, They've got the big billboard, and that's the place to go, Anchor Bar. Two weeks after we were there, someone got killed in that bar. Yeah, didn't happen while we were there, praise the Lord. But we went there and we saw that we went then up to Niagara Falls. We had intention totally to go over to Canada and see it from the Canada side. My wife's passport was out of date. We didn't get to do that. We had this long journey all mapped out of how we were going to go. You know what our goal was? Just guess. What was it? Canada. Our goal was to get back home. We wanted to see the adventure. We wanted to go through the journey, but we had a destination point that we intended to get back home. When we were coming from New Jersey over to New York, a little bit of panic, any of you who have driven in that area, there is this, there is this um, clover that comes off in five different directions. And I'm driving up in this, uh, uh, I think it had 60,000 miles on it, this van, this old van that we had. And I start to panic, so I push the gas real fast. And when I did, right in the middle of this big cl- clover that I had to make all of these decisions, my car just stopped dead in the middle of the road. Well, we didn't plan that part just so you know, it wasn't that we had that on the agenda. We weren't thinking to ourselves, once we get to New York, let's just stall out in the middle of the clover because our goal was to get back home. I remember putting the car back into drive, turning the key, it started and off we went. It was almost like God saying, listen, calm down. Your anxiety is getting way too much. This is just a part of the journey. Sometimes with our children, we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis, uncertainty, not knowing what to do. They've made decisions. Somebody else has made decisions. And we think to ourselves, this is it. And reality, is just a moment in the journey. Relax. Take it in. Remember it. Talk about it. It's just part of the journey. It's not the destination. The destination is to grow them into young men and women who love the Lord and who are independent and who are on their own and now will continue to be a part of sharing the gospel and carrying the love of Christ to the next person and the next person. Jesus had this exactly right. He cleared it up for us. He made it so palatable when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're about as parents pouring into them to love God, but have a perspective of how to love others. And so Melissa and I created a plan for our boys. And the reason we did this is not because we're perfect parents. There are so many things that we did wrong. There are so many things I wish I could go back and change. There are so many ways that I responded out of my emotion or my anger or my frustration when God wanted me to respond out of love and grace but this plan really helped keep us on the goal. And that is to raise them to be adults for Christ. And so what we did is we created, and and I'll I'll hold the book up right now because this is the result of that process. We created a journey plan. And in that, there were certain times that we did journey events. We did one uh, when they were seven, when they were 12, when they were 14, 18, 16, 18, 21, and 24, where we surrounded them with people that would speak into our life. People always ask me, how did you choose these dates? The reason I chose those dates is because the, the, the devil has chosen those dates to be turning points for children to get them in the wrong direction. There's a scripture verse that I think of almost every day in 1 Peter 5, 8, that says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those who he could devour. Stand firm in your face. It goes on and on and on to talk about how we need to stand against that. And here with our children, we come to times that we must stand in the gap with them. At the age of 12, let me just tell you, the peer pressure is enormous. That's when you start seeing things really happen, speed up for your child. Do they like me? Don't they like me? Do they wear the right clothes? It just goes on and on and on. It's maddening. And so to step into that moment and say, you are not what the world says you are. You are what God says you are. It's a key moment. And then again, at the age of 14, when, listen, parents, they can lie to you good by 14. They figured it out. They know that they can tell you that they're going to somebody's house and they can end up somewhere else. Has anybody had this experience? Is it just me? Yeah. When they're 16, as much as we want to be in control, as much as we want to protect them, when they get behind that 3,500-pound automobile, it's them in the road. When they're 18, the world says, now you're an adult. Do what you want to do. Rebel against your parents. Don't let them have any authority over you. When you're 21, that's the time that you gotta get lit. (laughs) Just being honest. When they're 24, it says, why have you not figured out who you are and what you're doing with your life? These are all baits of the enemy that draw kids in at really pivotal times, that we as parents, as grandparents, as aunts aunts and uncles, as people have influence over children, can step into those moments. And instead of letting that be the narrative of that date in their life, we point them toward God. And so the other thing that we have in these events that we do for our boys is a plaque, and each year that they hit those milestones, there's a, there's a biblical value that we give them for that milestone and that part of the process. We put it on a plaque because in the, that scripture we read earlier, it talked about putting it by the door or putting it on the fence post. These are the things that they wake up to every day and they see the journey. The Ebenezer stones of the times that we stopped and we called out God's best in them. And in that process, we invite mentors to come in, people who are coaches and teachers, ministers, and and they sit around a table, usually eight to 10 people, including grandparents and and siblings and friends. And we all sit around this table and everyone goes around the table and says, this is what I see God doing in you. I want to remind you, we do a lot wrong, but coming up with this plan, it just has blown me away. It started off so simple And it's become this thing that has taken a life of Ebenezer's in my boy's life that helped them navigate and realize they're not alone in this journey. In our culture, I'm sorry I'm running long, but let me just give you this. In our culture, we are so divided. We don't have that nucleus of family around us. We don't have what we used to have in our lives. And we need to call in people to call out the best in our children, to be there at those key times and to lift them up. This ends at age 24, but let me just tell you, it doesn't end at age 24. Those of you who have parents over the age of 24, or kids over the age of 24, I have worked with people to put plans together for kids that are in their 40s and 50s and 60s to call them back to God. So so don't don't lose heart. Yeah, you you can continue to have a voice and an impact in your child's life without controlling, just pointing toward God and calling out the best in them. But at age 24, many of you may know that the front temporal lobe of the brain begins to completely form at that point. And the front temporal lobe is the part of the brain that kind of registers the emotions and keeps it in checks and helps you make wise decisions. So when somebody at the age of 14, 15, 16, 17 makes an unwise decision, let me just tell you, they are insane. It's okay. Don't get excited, Right? But saying to them by the age of 24, listen, we have trained you up in the way you should go. And now we are saying to you, love the Lord your God with all your might, with all, your, with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here you go, pass it on. This wasn't just for you, my dear son. This is for what God will do for you in the future if he so gives you children. To raise them up to know the Lord. And so we went through this process and the next picture is a picture of my son Isaiah on his 18th, this was last year. He came to us and said, dad, I want to invite a few more people to my manhood. That's what we call it, manhood journey, is that okay? And I'm like, how many more? And he says like 25 or 30. And I'm like $15 a person for dinner plus 30. No, we're not gonna do that son. So what we decided to do is just catering barbecue instead of making a big fancy meal, right? And so we invited all of these people and we're sitting around and he says to me getting closer to the date, can I take some time during the manhood uh, journey event to talk to the people who are there? I said, sure, let's do it. So inside of this room, there are 30 people sitting around table eating. We went through our process of all of the plaque honoring the different things that we do. And, and he finally came to the time that Isaiah was gonna speak and he had prepared to call out God's best in every person in the room. I don't do this kind of stuff right. God does. And I'm not doing that to brag, I'm just saying when someone, has people around them bigger than us as the parents, their friends, their teachers that are calling out the best in them. They start embodying this scripture verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second under this, love others as yourself. It was unexpected. But what I did gain from that is this, putting together a plan for raising our children to adulthood and continually calling out God's best for them and continually pointing them to Jesus is the right answer to the question of how to raise your child to adulthood. Can I pray for you this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, in this room, there are parents who have children of all ages and some are just beginning the process And I pray, God, as they are seeking you and getting you in their hearts that they will overflow onto their children. But God, maybe there are some parents here this morning that are mourning because their children have learned about you and know about you, but they are seeking their own way right now. We pray against the devil's schemes and just pray, God, that you would lay your hands on them, that they would remember what they were taught as a child, that they would be encouraged and strengthened, and Lord, that you would give those parents hope. God, we just ask that you would take what we talked about today and let us be a generation who believes that you are still alive and let us pour that into this next generation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.